Well, if you will please turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter. We're in Second Peter in that first chapter still. We just started uh, this, this book the last time I preached. We are in verses 3 and 4 this morning. Now, I want to, however, since not being that far into the book, we have this luxury. I want to start from chapter one, uh, verse 1 as we read through this. Verse 1, Simon Peter, or Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And here we come to our passage this morning, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In our passage this morning, in verses 3 and 4, just to summarize what we just read, the apostle writes that Jesus' divine power, he's talking about Christ's divine power here, that his divine power will grant eternal life and godliness to his elect, which includes divine promises of redemption and a divine nature like Christ's to live a holy life. You see, Peter knew his fellow servants of Christ had a very great need. They faced opposition. We talked about this the last time I preached. They faced opposition and doctrine from false teachers that had begun to sneak in, sneak their way into the fold among them. And they were spreading lies about the glory that awaited when Christ returned for them. Now, if you recall from my last time I preached, I briefly shared this background to the letter, uh, that there was a, a contingency of false teachers that were teaching a false gospel. A very key error in their teaching was their skepticism regarding the return of the Lord uh, and that divine judgment on the day of the Lord. Uh, now, their argument was that future judgment, it will never occur. And they rested their case on this. They believed this way and made their argument based on the apparent delay of the Lord's return. Uh, they, in fact, were criticizing the apostolic teaching of the day regarding Christ's return, saying that was more or less an invention of the preachers themselves, you know, just tagging their proclamation as nothing really more than myth, again, in regards to Christ's return. You see that they were empiricists. They had to see it and touch it and feel it to believe it in many ways. Uh, they denied the supernatural and miracles to varying extents. 
As is common with false teaching and, and false doctrine, you see that the enjoining with these teachings with a twisted set of morals. They go hand in hand. Bad teaching, false teaching with a twisted morality. Denying certain aspects of the future promises of Christ's return, including the day of judgment, they would go, therefore, and embrace a more liberal lifestyle. Of course, I'm not talking a, a politically liberal lifestyle. I mean a, a hedonistic type of lifestyle. Uh, they misinterpreted Paul's teaching on freedom, on freedom in Christ. And one of their great sins that they were introducing into the church was a freedom in s- sexual immorality. It is, in fact, with this bondage to sin that they, they window-dressed, if you will, as, as a freedom. And they sought to mislead the church members, lead them into a false way of thinking and believing. And, and of course, this infuriated Peter. It's the same today. It's the same thing today when one-time professors of the faith, they turn to a different gospel for themselves. You know, one that connects somehow with immorality or, or drunkenness, you know, cheating in some way, living for the sake of serving the flesh. Now, this often is a result of really not ever really truly believing the promises of the gospel and, and everything that's entailed in redemption, in the Lord's redemption. Uh, the temptations of the world overcome them. They are the ones who, who have the no gospel root in themselves. They're swept away to serve the world. Again, they stop fighting. They stop struggling with sin. It's too hard they say. It's too hard. They succumb to the lies that they were really only fighting what is natural. You know, more or less telling themselves, why fight what is natural, what is truly harmless to other people? Why fight it? They hear these things and they begin to believe them for themselves. They give up that fight and that struggle. The struggle against sin, the struggle against the temptations of the flesh and its various expressions, it's truly an impossible fight without the Lord. Done in our own strength equates to at at least an eventual failure. Don't be fooled by temporary successes that you may see there it will result in eventual failure when you fight against the flesh in your own strength or at least one vice is going to be traded for another well just like peter's original readers we too need to be reminded of what divine power truly divine power is manifested on our behalf to live in a godly and holy life. A life that 
does have the glory of heaven waiting for us after we have finished the race, after we have run our God-given course. A future that does include Christ's glorious return for his beloved bride. We get to look forward to this and long for it. We need to be reminded of this, don't we? And we need to know it well. That's what Peter wants to do. Remind them. In the latter part of verse 3 in our text, Peter writes that Christ's divine power comes to us as a gift through the knowledge of Him. Like in verse 2 above, uh, the grace and peace multiplied to the beloved in Christ comes in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. And as I stated before, the knowledge of God is a key theme in the letter. It keeps popping up. We are called through the knowledge of Him. Effectually called to Christ to receive His salvation. And it's a gift that's received. It's not, one, it's not a work that is earned. For all of those who have been called, those, the elect of God. And this calling, this calling comes by the very glorious and excellent manifestation of Christ's divine power. There are gifts, beloved, there are gifts to be received as the Lord displays his power for us. And we must live in them. We must know them. Remember them. Peter wants his, his readers to remember and know this. So, here is my key question that I put to the text. Just what has the manifestation of Christ's divine power, just what has it granted to us? There are a, a number of gifts we could spend our time on, but I'm going to call out three. Three that we see in our text. Three gifts that I believe the Apostle wants the Christian to know and remember. Number one, remember that by Christ's divine power, you have everything you need. Number two, remember that divine promises of Christ are trustworthy. And thirdly, Know that you possess that you possess a portion of Christ's divine nature to lead a holy life. Amen. So with that, let's go to my first point here. Remember that by Christ's divine power you have everything you need. Again, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power, that is Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In his first letter, Peter's first letter, presumably to the same audience, Peter extolled the bounty of their newfound lineage in Christ. That they are undoubtedly a chosen race, he writes. A chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation in Christ's very own possession. Once a people ignorant of God, but now 
God's people. Once having not received mercy, now recipients of incalculable mercy. In short, they are in Christ. And Peter has told them already, he has told his readers already in his first letter that they have absolutely everything they need in Christ. And he he, he meant to remind them they already have all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, some, some would try to combine this phrase here in our text, combine the phrase life and godliness, and simply call it a godly life. Now that may be true. That may be a correct interpretation. It may be. The Scripture certainly does teach that we have a need in Christ to lead a godly life, and that He certainly equips us to do so. But in this case here, I believe to simply combine the phrase here and make godliness a mere adjective of life would miss what Peter is saying to, to encourage his readers. Now hear me out. The life Peter writes of here mainly refers to eternal life or everlasting life. An existence in Christ that begins at the moment of conversion, but not fully realized until one is united with Christ in glory. It certainly does include the corporeal life that the Christian possesses in the flesh. Really the same thing enjoyed by all human beings. You know, we have the blessings of, we get to take a, a fresh breath of air this morning. Get to fill your stomachs. But in Christ, it is an amplified existence that is teeming with spirit-filled grace and power. It is an everlasting life. As regards the godliness here that, that Peter's promoting, believers must seek to stand Stand in Christ's strength to live in a godly way, to maintain more or less an eternal mindset on their daily living, to strive and maintain a forever mindset, like what we're learning in our small groups right now, that forever mindset. The possession of an everlasting life in Jesus, one that cannot be forsaken and lost once truly received, is something Peter's readers should want to hear about, should want to be reminded about. The, the false teachers did not themselves necessarily, as a group, did not necessarily deny an existence after death. But what they truly sought to do was to devoid it of power. It is a life granted by Christ's divine power. And it therefore has a likeness in him. It was and it is to be a, a life that is to be cherished and cared for. Cared for by seeking to live in a godly way. So, just what is it? What is it? 
to live in a godly way? Is it achieved by our hard-earned efforts? Uh, through, through hard work and blood and sweat and tears. Is that how we get to it? No doubt. Certainly no doubt that one who has sought to live in this way has scars to show. You're going to get some scars in this world trying to live in a godly way. Paul expressed his own desire to the Galatians that he wanted no one to cause him trouble, he writes. No one would cause him trouble. That he bared on his body the marks of Jesus. There are tears for certain in pursuit of godliness. Uh, But Peter tells his readers that already in Christ's power, they have everything, all things, everything they need to live in a godly way. And the apostle gives away, he gives away the answer in the following phrase, through the knowledge of him. This knowledge, it's not simply a recognition of Jesus, of who Jesus is based on what someone has said or what someone has read. It is a saving knowledge, a salvific knowledge of Christ, one that can only come from the power of him who calls a man or woman or child to give them everlasting life. Now this knowledge attests to new life embodied ironically in a body of death, a body that is slowly passing away and will someday die. Therefore, it is not a knowledge meant to merely bolster that which is passing away. Rather, it is a knowledge that promotes godliness. It has an eternal mindset. It has riches and treasures awaiting it in heaven. It's a spiritual life in Jesus. Knowing Christ as Lord and Master... This knowledge leads to the fear of the Lord. And what does that lead to? Wise living. It is a knowing of the person of Christ, of God the Father, of the Holy Spirit, the triune God, on a personal level. It is a relational knowledge, not one that is merely intellectual an academic. It knows of Jesus' sacrifice uh, and atonement and His redeeming grace and your great, great need for these things. It knows it like one knows himself because it is something that is possessed. And it's something that's it's lived through. This knowledge of him, this knowledge of Christ, it humbles its host. It makes its possessor know that living in a godly way is not achievable. Not, it's not really attainable unless it is lived in God's power. Again, 
It is a power that has already been granted to the, to the believer to live in this way. These all things that Peter writes in verse 3 that have been granted include foremost God himself. The seal of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to walk in the Spirit, to to not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit of God gives His child fruits. It gives us fruits to walk in. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have this. We must walk in them. This is what they are called to remember. They may enjoy godliness if they walk in the Spirit already given to them. Do you doubt the ability, beloved, to maintain a godly way about you? To be patient? Self-controlled. Those are toughies, aren't they? Are you noticing deficiency in your way of living that rather should be projecting godliness? Now, if you seem to be lacking in this, do not despair. This way of living Peter tells us, is it's yours for the taking. Jesus' very own, his very own glory and excellence manifests such power in your life. God has not changed. Beloved, you have not been forsaken. You only need a gentle reminder every now and then. This, this life that we've been given, it's difficult. It's hard. Brother touched on it this morning in Sunday school, talking about providence. As we remain in this temporary exile here on earth, it is in some ways even harder than our unbelieving neighbor's life, since God Himself has imparted an enmity between His children and the world and the seed of the devil. The world doesn't like Christians. The seed of the devil does not like Christians. It doesn't like God. It hates God. Stop. Stop your striving apart from the knowledge of God. Live in the knowledge of God. You know this. You know you do this when you act out of anxiety instead of wisdom. How does that work out for you? How does it work out for me? Beloved, it is okay. It is okay when bad things happen. Even really bad things. And what do I mean by that? 
What I mean by that is don't be alarmed. You know, take a page from the Psalms or Ecclesiastes. In this fallen world, we do see the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And yet, God remains on his throne. Don't be alarmed that raising children is difficult and exhausting at times. God has not lost control of things in your life. Things are going as planned in the broad scheme of things. He will bring you, beloved, to the end. But meanwhile, rest in the knowledge of Christ and walk in the power of the Spirit and you will lead a godly life. You will. You will. My second point, remember that the divine promises of Christ are trustworthy. One of the apostles' aims here is to refute the false teaching that had crept up from within the walls of the church. It, it, it came from within. That false teaching that sought to diminish the hope of the glory that awaits the servant of God. Remembering the promises of God is good medicine, isn't it? It is. These promises, Peter writes, come by way of the manifestation of Christ's divine power. That's its source, ultimately. The same ultimate source as what has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. And likewise, without, without having been called, the promises are not available. You must be called. But, those, but to those who have been called, the promises are guaranteed. They are trustworthy. The text describes the promises as being His promises, Jesus' promises. And they are precious and very great. Precious and very great. They are precious in that their value cannot be measured. It cannot be measured since the cost for procuring them required shedding the priceless blood of Christ. The very life of Him. Their preciousness is no less than divine, you see. The promises are also very great. Not just great, but very great. The superlative is necessary here. The greatness of the promises of Christ are no less than infinite. He is infinite. Are you in Him, brother and sister? Yes, indeed you are. And what Peter's readers must know, that since they are these, these promises, so so precious and very great, born of Christ's divine power, then they are perfectly trustworthy. Spurgeon 
Spurgeon wrote on this. He commented saying, quote, none ever promised as God has done. None ever promised as God has done. Kings have promised up to even half of their kingdoms. But what of that? God promised to give his own son and even his own self to his people. And he did it. It wasn't just talk. He did it. Kings, they draw a line somewhere, but the Lord sets no bounds to the gifts that he ordains for his chosen. His promises are immeasurably awesome and must not be doubted in the least. But how well acquainted are you with the promises of God? For I answer that question or go on to approach that question about how well you may be acquainted with the promises of God, I want to argue first the importance of remembering them, just simply remembering them. Peter mentions them, these promises, because... Well, the people were forgetting them. They were in danger of being enticed by the enemy that was, again, in their midst, these false teachers. And remembering these promises, chiefly Christ's promise to return and to bring final and ultimate judgment, remembering those promises would keep them from believing that an an immoral and worldly lifestyle is acceptable to God. Because there would be a day of judgment or somehow that God doesn't care. It would help them in that as well. if, If they were convinced of the need to abide by the promises of Christ, to see the benefit therein, then they would be also acquainted with them. They would see the need to be acquainted with them, to know them, to, to live in them. You know, the, the great promises of God, they pertain to the redemption that we have in the Lord. It, it's surety, it's completeness, it's holiness, it's perfection. These promises. Starting in regard to these promises, starting all the way back, Genesis 3.15, we have the divine and merciful promise of the offspring of the woman to come. All the way back there. That promise of that offspring, one that would bruise the head of the serpent, that is, destroy the devil. The value of this very great promise was revealed, in fact, that it was given on the heel of Adam's and Eve's rebellion. That promise was given after that rebellion even. We also have this promise of the Messiah extended to Abraham and his offspring. A promise that is, we learn is realized through faith alone. Of course, there are amazing promises as well given to Israel, the nation of Israel, in receiving and keeping a promised land. But with that, we know 
came the giving of the law to show them their sinfulness and, and their inability to keep the covenant tied to the promised land. The ultimate promise of redemption remained to be received only through faith. That promise was made more clear as time went on. In the covenant made with David, that it would be through the kingly line where the promised offspring, the Christ of God, would come. And then, all of a sudden, and then a fabric, the fabric of space and time, was torn with the first advent of Christ. The creator who made all things outside of himself would enter into that creation in a very special and magnificent way, humbling himself by taking on the the very real flesh of man, the promised offspring of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, the God-man coming into the world to save it. Saving it by suffering the the promised bruised heel given by the serpent. Dying on the cross. Saving it by bruising the head of the serpent. A, a, A very long and drawn out process that began with the death of sin's power. We know that God has his own purposes for using that devil. Again, the brother taught about that this morning in Sunday school. Quoting Luther, the devil is God's devil. Using him in, in various ways even. Even in some ways testing mankind. Testing faithfulness of the saints. Testing that produces endurance. Our own flesh tests us in these things. Our every victory over sin, our every victory over sin humiliates the devil for all the host of heaven to see. I love the thought of that. The giving of the Holy Spirit is helper, an absence of Christ's bodily presence, a seal of the promise that Christ will return to take his bride to be with him forever and ever. It truly, no, no handful of sermons could come close to rightly covering all the promises of God because they're throughout the entire Bible. The Bible is a book of God's promises. Promises to save and redeem man, to reconcile him to God, and to call him to pure righteousness. In those promises, we know that God will finish what he started. You know, what truly, when it comes to the veracity of the promises of God, its trustworthiness, what more evidence do we need that God is fully invested in this plan of redemption that he has than by the giving up of his only begotten son? What more evidence do you need that he is fully invested in this plan? And that includes your daily life, beloved. Living in the power of Christ is part of God's purpose in his overall plan. And if he can be trusted to finish what he started in you, 
then you can rest assured in those promises. Promises that pertain to life and godliness now. Now. And promises for a future glory. So don't you see, beloved, the vanity that there is in despairing the hardness of this life? It's under his control. Take rest. Give to him the good portion of your day. Now, regardless of where he takes you on that day's journey, if you are abiding in him, then you will be okay. We need to hear that. You will be okay. Your circumstances may stink at the moment, but you will be okay. Trust your family to him. Peter wants us to remember that we have everything we need to do this. To remember Christ's promises are trustworthy. And in verse 4, Peter tells us that through those, through those promises, God's making and keeping of them, we become partakers of the divine nature. That is Christ's nature. Peter's not saying that we're going to become God. For God does not share his essence. Nor do we become little gods. Rather, our likeness in him is being restored. It's being restored as it was before the fall in the process of redemption. In fact, someday as we meet the Lord in glory... We will be like him. John, the apostle, writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That is a promise, beloved. This is a promise to look forward to as we remain in exile. A glorious promise to be patient for. But even now, as the process of redemption works in us, sanctification for our spirit. We are being renewed by the Holy Spirit. Our, our minds are being renewed. And as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, through the strength and power granted to us by the Spirit of Christ, we shed off more and more of that old man, more and more of that sinful nature, dying to ourselves, we live more and more unto Christ. It's that putting off of the, the sinful man and putting on Christ that Paul writes about. Our obedience and service to Him, as we are partakers in this divine nature of Christ, our obedience and service to Him is more born out of love and a thankful heart 
More and more, it's, it's out of love. Producing in us Christ-likeness. And th- those fiery arrows, the devil keeps shooting at you. Or more and more easily extinguished. That shield of faith. I, I find this to be a great comfort. Like you, I want to know also what is in store for me now. What's in store for me now? What if the Christian life is in the already versus the not yet? To appreciate what we have now. To really appreciate what we have now requires that we see life through the Scriptures instead of how the world looks at things. The way the world values things. Now we must behold the beauty of the hidden person of the heart adorned with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter wrote in his previous letter which he said is, in God's sight, is very precious. The world won't look at it that way. Through the lens of Scripture, by God's grace, we do see it that way. God is truth. So we become truth in Him. We become truth. We love that which is true, and we hate the darkness and the lie. God is good. It is His very name. So He makes us good by His grace. We become the pure in heart. Who shall see God? As partakers in this divine gift of Christ's nature, we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The latter part of verse 4. And as Spurgeon explains, we who are partakers of the divine nature, we know that by nature we were dead in trespasses and sins. And we would have continued so until this day if there had not been a breaking through of Christ's divine power in our lives on our behalf. There, we once laid in the grave of our sin, rotten and corrupt. And when the voice of the preacher called, we didn't hear. But when the Lord said, Lazarus, come out, what did Lazarus do? He came out. When he said to us, live, then we lived also, and we live today. The spiritual life began to beat within our hearts with joy and peace through believing. This, beloved, we ought never to forget. Because if our religion is something that springs up from within ourselves, it's of the flesh, and it, and it must die. But praise be to Jesus, our Lord and Master. This 
religion we now possess and live out does not come from within us. It has come to us and upon us. And slowly, day by day, we resemble the Savior of our souls, partaking of that divine nature. This, by the same divine power that has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and granted to us His very precious and very great promises. I'm going to wrap things up here now. I want to conclude with an invitation, really. For those of you who have yet to receive Christ as Savior, those of you still living in bondage, in a bondage and chains that you have not yet acknowledged, but, but maybe, maybe you're starting to feel the weight of those chains. That bondage that weighs you down to a hopelessness and vanity of life because of sin, your sin. It weighs you down, I know. I still remember what it was like. It's miserable. Sin has separated you, friend, from the presence of God, the warmth of His presence, knowing Him, from the hope of everlasting life. Man was not created to be apart from God. It was sin that introduced through the rebellion of your very ancient forefather, Adam. Passed on to all of his progeny, all of his children, therefore, all mankind born from him, including you. The Bible says that you were born in sin and that you yourself have sinned against the commandments of God. You were born in it and you have your own trespasses to pay for and deal with. That you were born actually an enemy of God. In Colossians chapter 1 it says regarding the unbeliever that he is alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now that is alienated from God and hostile in mind toward him. There is only sin and death in an eternity of suffering and pain that awaits the person who remains hostile to the gospel of Christ. But it is this gospel, this good news of Christ that He came as God, the very Son of God, of the same essence of God. He came and took on flesh just as was promised from the beginning. Just as was promised. He lived a righteous life because of His love, firstly for His Father. And He lived it for you to be reconciled to God. His perfect obedience, given exchange for your sin and wicked disobedience. The great exchange. Yes, the Bible tells us that Jesus took on the sins of all those who would believe in Him and die and suffer in their place. 
paying the penalty for their sin. Do you see your need for this, dear friend? This was always the plan of God from before the beginning of the world. And this is what redemption cost in Christ's death, the sinless Son of God. And this is what redemption grants to those who believe. You don't have to do anything to earn this everlasting gift. You would only spoil and dishonor the gift with your your vain attempts if you tried to. You only have to believe upon Christ and what he did for sinners like you. Repent of your sin. That means to turn away from it. Turn away from it and instead follow Christ all the rest of your days. Will you do this today? As Paul, the apostle, preached to the church at Corinth one time very long ago, he said, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. By his divine power, you have everything. You will receive everything you need for life and godliness. And for, for you, beloved, for you who do know Christ and believe in him, rejoice with a great rejoicing, for his divine promises are trustworthy. Christ has overcome the world, and you possess a portion of his divine nature to lead a holy life. Praise God for such an excellent salvation.